on this episode of Lawrence Talks. I am joined by my friend and philosophical peer, Colleen Watson of Binghamton University of New York. Colleen specializes in applied ethics and philosophy, and her dissertation focuses in part on providing an account of the moral duties that are imposed on citizens of democratic governments. Like me, he has also started a philosophy podcast in Wisdom of the People that engages with her local community about the values and norms that founded democracy. In this episode, we focus on this latter conversation and point to the questions and issues that face all citizens of democracies. As always, you can listen to this and past episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencedocs.org. Colleen, thank you for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me, David. Um, I am very glad to be talking with my fellow Hilltopper and Bobcat alum. That's right. So for those who uh, um, who are familiar with Lawrence Talks, uh, Colleen and I both went to St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas um, for our undergraduate. And then we mm-hmm. uh, separately and not in the same time uh, went to Texas State University. Or did, did we go at the same Did we go at the same time? Yeah. Well, I think we were actually, I took a break in between my undergraduate and master's and we ended up still like at around kind of the same point we were at St. Edwards. Cause you were what, like a year or two behind me at St. Edwards. Right. And then you, I think you entered a year behind me at Texas state. Okay. So we were colleagues and then I got the job as an adjunct faculty member at Texas state. So we were still like hanging out with each other during you finishing up your master's. So we were there together. Yes. Um, no, we, yeah, we were there together, but we, but different, but different years. It was sort of, it was staggered. Yeah. Um, we ended up winning a uh, international business ethics case competition. <laughs> <laughs> we, we rocked oh, that we, competition. Um, as you said, we were the superior ethicists. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we were going against uh, teams from Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't remember uh, who else was there. Uh, I think the Loyola College in California. Okay. Um, I want to say like a team from Hong Kong was also there. Yes. It's like a, a lot of different teams. And a team, I think, from Canada, I think like Masters University or something. Yeah, like that Master sounds University. right. Um, which is, I think, the biggest or the major... I think business school in in Canada or one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were up against some pretty heavy heavy hitters, at least uh, programs that had been going to that sort of competition for some time. Yeah, that was the inaugural year that Texas State had ever sent anybody to that competition. Yeah, and we we uh, we did a pretty good job. Yeah, we did. I mean, we brought in some Adam Smith to talk about. We brought in like for, did we talk we talked about we virtue did. ethics. We did. And I think other people were just like, oh, you know, stakeholder theory, <laughs> fine. But like, what is, but what's the normative thing? We got to the fundamentals and they responded well to it. Um, yeah. And which is, it's funny that you and I talked about virtue ethicists because on on this, on this, as an aside, you and I are not virtue ethicists. No. Um, I consider myself a pluralist when it comes to ethics these days. Mm -hmm. And that might just mean I can't make up my mind, but I'm not a relativist. (laughs) Well, I I, I tend to say that um, when it comes down to it, I'm a consequentialist. Mm -hmm. 
that uh, leans towards utilitarianism. And, uh, but I, I think there is, there is, uh, but like you, I tend to be also a, a sort of a pluralist um, when it comes to decision-making. Mm-hmm. Like what, when it comes to decision-making, uh, you employ as much, whatever tools we have available to us. But I guess where, where I might sort of lean back to consequentialism or utilitarianism and say, but at the end of the day, what matters is uh, well-being. Yeah, and I think that's something that virtue ethics points to as like the long game. So I think it can be the case that you might be a utilitarian in your individual dis- decisions. But like, as far as you looking out over the course of your life, you're looking for the good life. And this is what Aristotle said, right? What ethics is about is our interpersonal interactions that get us to eudaimonia or like human flourishing. And he's not like concerned about what do you do in any uh, ethical dilemma in the trolley problem or something. Aristotle is not going to be able to help you with that. John Stuart Mill might, Kant might. Um, so you can use those when it comes to individual decisions where you need like practical guidance. Um, but for Aristotle, that's not necessarily what's important. So I think it's possible to take the long view that's more virtue centered while taking the short term view where you might need that decision making theory. Yeah. And I think uh, that's something I always like to emphasize is all these theories have something right about them. Right. Um, so it, mm-hmm. it you can make a good uh, a good career at, at being one of them at a time and, and advocating for one of them. Um, yeah. But I think it, it some, there's something uh, more truer in, in involving a little bit of uh, all of them in some way in your in your life. Yeah. And there are um, I've had a number of conversations with people who are Kantians or utilitarians who all say like you know they can take or leave the first categorical imperative but the second categorical imperative like says something true even about like consequentialism you know you are not promoting the good if what you're normally doing is using people as a mere means to your own end right you know and and with that sort of discussion in mind um Pauline, there, there's you and I also share a a passion for applied and public philosophy. That's right. Um, I would say I have. I think that was always bubbling up in me, but I think it was being at Texas State that brought it out for me. Um, one of the mentors you and I shared is Joanne Carson, who started the dialogue series at Texas State, which was like or still is, it's an ongoing program, Mm -hmm. a wonderful program that's like meant to take philosophical discussions out into the public. We went to the San Marcos Public Library and we held uh, dialogues on Texas State campus where the whole community was invited, where we're not trying to like, you know, talk about the nitty gritty of Aquinas's metaphysics or something. Like we want to talk about something of public concern and show people why philosophy is a public concern yeah and i think one of the uh one of my favorite uh, aspects of the program or the dialogue series was when students would go to 
the public library and with a newspaper and say it was the talk of the times it was a talk of the times series um mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's that, that's just a brilliant sort of program to have is to go to a sort of public forum and and say here's this issue that's being discussed in uh the newspaper which is arguably supposed to and, and that's going to be a discussion that we could have as well as uh you know in terms of what newspapers and journalism is meant to represent is meant to do um but arguably newspaper is meant to sort of be a highlight of the issues of the right. time and i think that's sort of a really nice uh initiative to have to sort to sort of okay here's what is being discussed in this newspaper and journalists and, and journalism can do so much to bring out the major issues and the nuances of, of these stories. Um, but it's always nice to have supplemental conversations that, that bring those out a little bit more. And I think that's what, what the purpose of the, uh, and one of the purposes of the talk of the times was meant to sort of do. Yeah. And I think it was very valuable in that it was a good way to see that philosophy permeates like every part of our life. You know, you read the news and if the headline is, you know, um, the city is going to fund this bond measure that's going to help uh, fix our highways or something like that. Um, you might think that's very boring, like civic wonkiness, but like to decide what whether or not that's a good policy to vote on, you have to think about what is it what what are the goals i want for my city will having you know smooth road to drive on fulfill those goals or will it not is this too much money to be spending on this well even the question of like is this too much money is going to um be remnant uh come out of your views about like what's the role of taxpayer money supposed to be you know, or what is the right uh, tax tax rate for the government to take out of us? Because if it's something that's like, okay, the government should only be providing the bare minimum of services, then maybe like fixing the road today is more of a luxury item that we can save for later on. Or maybe not. You have to ask yourself like these value positions about like how you're going to respond to practical measures. And be before, because we are going to talk about, because uh, this sort of touches upon one of the uh, our topics for today is uh, the sort of obligations and things that that citizens in a democracy have to uh, be worried about or, or sort of take upon themselves. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to have this conversation about public philosophy um, and how you go about and and sort of answering the question of uh, what does it mean to do philosophy philosophy publicly? Um, you run you run your uh, the wisdom of the people podcast. Yeah, like uh, you, I'm a podcast host now. Yeah, <laughs> it's surprisingly it may be uh, uh, frighteningly easy to start a podcast. Yeah, and so uh, but but I mean again this this could be about um that's good for a democracy that it's so easy for people to get a platform of their own of this of this sort uh although it's not 
for the old heads out there, not necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, whereas many people used to sort of get on their own radio frequencies uh, back in the day. So uh, it's it's something like that. And it's something that uh, podcasts, at least in my mind, has provided people an opportunity to, if they have something to say, it's fairly easy for them to put it out there. Yeah. And I think it it is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, the barriers to entry are low. I am blessed to have uh, been given a grant for this podcast. So I, it was Humanities New York that like gave me the money to buy all the equipment and to um, do various things that I need to pay for throughout the podcast, pay for the WordPress site, all that kind of stuff. Um, but like, it wouldn't be that hard for somebody who makes fairly common middle-class wage to like do all this. Um, and I think it was great that the barrier to entry was very low for me. Cause then that just means, Oh, um, I just have to do this. And I have to think about what I'm going to say that I think is in the public interest and that I think is doing public good. But then that also means that people who maybe aren't, um, doing things in good faith, like I want to do also have a very low barrier to entry. Um, you know, I don't know how many podcasts are on Spotify right now. I don't know what the, <laughs> you know, nefarious to good natured ratio of podcasts there are, but you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there that I think are detrimental to the public good. Mm. And I, and even like thinking about what the public good is, is, you know, value position position to take. I'd be interested if we came up with a measure of what the public good is and did like an audit of Spotify to see which, which podcasts are like maybe good for the public or at least neutral and which ones are actually not doing great work. I think that would, be, that would be um, a very interesting research project um, that, that could, yeah, sociology. We just all sociology students. We just gave you a <laughs> dissertation. Run well, with not it. even just a dissertation, but this could turn on to, uh, turn into a sort of full fledged uh, uh, website where we where we offer those sort of ratings and things like that. I mean, not just sociologists, not just sociologists. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we philosophers yeah. too have to get in get into that discussion as well. Yeah, that's a good like. Maybe it is a good project to blend the uh, quant with the qualitative, uh, qualitative distinctions. Yeah, I mean, like you, like you were mentioning, that philosophy permeates throughout uh, a lot of these topics, and uh, determining, you know, what it means for a podcast to contribute something good to the community, and what it means to for some, for a podcast to contribute something bad to a community. Those are very uh, philosophically laden topics and conversations, um, right? And also, it's going to be uh, it, it will de depend on the values that we're trying to uh, emphasize and that we're, we that we think are important to emphasize. Um, so, yeah, very that that would be a very interesting project project to do. Um, but I, I want to get back to this discussion about how you go about in thinking uh, about what public philosophy is as as you uh, do it yourself. Yeah, so um, I am a scholar of 
liberal theory and democratic theory. So um, what I study is political philosophy. Specifically, that's about like the liberal side is um, how is it that we conceive of liberty? What does it mean to have an individual sphere of rights that the government has to respect? And in democratic theory, like what is it to do self-governance? Why should we be doing self-governance? And while I'm like working on this dissertation, that's very, um, I guess, full of maybe niche knowledge for philosophers. Um, I wanted to do something that brought democratic philosophy down to the demos, down to the people. Demos is a Greek word that means people. That's the root of the word democracy. Um, and I specifically wanted to do it because, you know, we live in a very fraught time and we are very worried about whether democracy might survive this this uh, time. Um, and But I think there is uh, still some shared ground out there among people who, even though they might disagree vehemently about hot button issues like abortion or critical race theory or whatever, if we are still praising democracy as a system of governance, well, then let's come together and talk about what is it that we value about democracy. And so that's what the podcast does, is try to start these conversations among philosophers and among other citizens about what is democracy? Does it fulfill some sort of goal that's worth doing in the public sphere in our social life? What are the values it promotes? Um, what are the types of institutions that we need to have to have a fully functioning democracy? What does it mean to be a citizen of democracy? And what are the duties of citizenship in democracies? And those are like fundamental philosophical issues that we just don't hear talked about a whole lot, you know, on the news or in any like public forum when, you know, you're at a school board meeting, it's too late to talk about philosophical issues. Like you have to decide on the budget. Um, so, but I do think that there should be space for this. And in some ways I think it's almost not fair that like I'm at this fancy R1 university where I could pursue my PhD in this and teach, you know, students that are going to law school or different kinds of graduate school this but not everybody has those opportunities. So I want to bring that opportunity down to people to have what I think is sort of that gives, I think, public life dignity. And that is putting all of the information about what is valuable or what could be valuable about public life into the hands of all people. I like that. Uh, I really like that, Colleen. And, and it's sort of, uh, you know, before before we started uh, recording officially, uh, we were having this conversation because the way I tend to think about public philosophy and and see how how much of this you track onto. Um, you and I were raised uh, in a yeah. as Catholics. Went to a Catholic college. Uh, no longer, even though I no longer identify as one. Um, mm -hmm. There was nonetheless this uh, discussion within Catholicism about what it means, and, and really Christianity generally, I think all Christians have this conversation, um, about what it means to be believers uh, and faithful Christians uh, in everyday life, at work, um, at home, um, at the store, 
everything else. What does it mean for Christianity to permeate through someone's life? And the way, it, so influenced by this question, I then posed to myself, what does it mean to be a philosopher in the same sense? What does it mean to be mm -hmm. a philosopher in a community? Is it any different? Um, does me being a philosopher within a community bestow any special duties or obligations to be uh, on me to act in, in any particular way? Um, and and there's a there's a bit of a mix, or it has been a bit of a mix of to say yes and no. Um, I don't necessarily have to live within the community as sort of trying to broadcast the fact that I'm a philosopher. But you also think about, you know, uh, Plato's dialogues and how the ancient uh, Greek philosophers thought of this question or what it meant to be philosophical on a daily basis to sort of accost people um, about these uh, particular mm -hmm. questions. Um, like, what does it mean to be faithful? What, or what does it mean to be loved by the gods? Um, what does it mean to remember? Um, what does it mean to love? Like these are these are all sort of questions that they had somewhat in a public sort of uh, public forum in a public area. Yeah, with, their, with people that they interacted with. And I would say, you know, if you look at the way that Socrates is portrayed by Plato, at least, mm -hmm. and that's really the only person I. I've studied that much about how Socrates is portrayed. Um, although, were you in Dr. Wake's Plato seminar uh, when we read Aristophanes' The Cloud? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I also performed it. Oh, yeah. At the, <laughs> the alumni banquet at Texas yes. State. Oh, right, yes. right. Yeah, that's another way of portraying Socrates that's uh, <laughs> a little irreverent. But so in works like the apology or the euthyphro um i do think socrates is kind of uh, a secular messianic figure in some way mm. in the same way that mm -hmm. jesus was i mean jesus was a public philosopher right um and i say secular for socrates because like his his questioning wasn't always about the religion of the state um yeah, right. a lot of time at times it was and you know there's no story of him coming back three days later after his execution <laughs> by the state. Um, but both Socrates and Jesus are talking about what the good life is. And um, they're giving their versions of what the good life is uh, from the four gospels that are published in the New Testament. There's no, Jesus doesn't talk about a Calipolis, but St. Augustine does. When he is, you know, shaping Catholic and Christian theology and philosophy. And in a lot of ways, I think definitely their followers um, became, I think both Plato and Aristotle can be kind of like apostles of Socrates in the same way that um, Peter and Paul were. But yeah, I mean, we still hold up these two um, men as purveyors of potential good lives um the sermon on the mount is talking about like rethink what you believe about who should be in power 
rethink what you think um, about who should have money and what our equality among each other should be in the same way that Socrates, you know, pressed Gorgias and pressed uh, Xenophon about, well, what do you mean uh, that all people should have, uh, well, I'm, I'm like generalizing yeah. across the dialogues here. I'm not, uh, you know, what does it mean to say that like you get that all men should have like training in rhetoric? Like, what does it mean to say that they have a right to go speak in the, speak in the public sphere and then get power from that? Why can't it be this other way of doing things? Yeah. And, and so it, it's, it's something that, uh, so public philosophy, but, and thinking of, of public philosophy in that way, it's almost as if you there. It doesn't make sense to make or use that distinction. Public philosophy, because um, mm-hmm. at least if you're if you're doing, and it sounds like this is what your pro, your your own dissertation project is sort of doing, is this sort of bottom up sort of conversation about what a thing is. And using mm-hmm. the, that sort of that feedback and that sort of discussion to inform your own sort of your own insights into into a topic. Yeah. And I think philosophy by necessity has to be public because everybody does philosophy. Like everyone yeah. thinks about what the good life are, is and like everyone has at least a little bit of reflection about like, what are my values? Maybe not everybody reflects so deeply on should this be my values? Could my values be some other way? But like there has to be some some sort of reflection when you think um, I'm going to do things exactly the way my parents did. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we all have to make moral choices in our lives. I think the two most important classes I have taught and I have TA'd for are medical ethics and environmental ethics because everyone has to make medical decisions. Everyone is going to have to make medical decisions for a loved one, probably. You know, you're going to have to decide what to do when your spouse gets into a car accident or your parent is um, aging in a way that you can't take care of them on your own anymore. And you live in an environment, whether or not climate change is real. You still have duties for like how to treat the natural world. That conversation always interested me too. Is it's like even if we say that <clears throat> climate change is not as severe as a certain side says it is, I think it still remains a question to ask ourselves: How should we remain, or how should we continue to, to treat the planet? Um, how should we continue using these natural resources? Um, and so it, right. the question may, maybe be, uh, about the severity does come into, uh, does become important at, at, at a certain stage, certainly. Um, but there's still, one shouldn't say, well, if it's not that severe, that means we don't have to care that much about how we treat the environment. Right. If it's not that severe, then like we should be thankful for that. But we should that that should make us keep on our toes that we don't get to the point where it could be that severe. 
like, yeah, maybe I am being alarmist about it. And I hope other people are right that it's not as bad as it is. I mean, I, I honestly do hope that. Um, I don't want to live in a world or have kids in a world that is on fire. Um, but that doesn't give you a pass to like do whatever you want with the world. Right. Or to, to at least uh, say that we shouldn't do anything at all. Doing something or even if we want to be measured about the impact that climate change is having on us. Um, I think it's there are depending on what you look at on the on on what statistics you look at, there does seem to be some clear impact about the severity of storms, the severity of um how much uh the tides are starting to come in. Um, this sort of, to me, and this is sort of, we won't get into this, um, but I, I would do want to sort of point to this question of the more severe climate change becomes one sort of impact or one sort of issue that this is going to have an impact, impact on, which I don't think what well, it's, it's starting to become, uh, a topic that's, that comes up is the use of borders of national borders the the more severe climate change becomes Mm -hmm. the less sense it makes to sort of emphasize or to enforce borders and so this gets in this sort of gets us into this discussion about obligations yeah and moral obligations and especially the obligations that um are generated by being citizens of a democracy. And as you mentioned, you your some of your work and some of your research has been in this sort of uh, topic. Um, and we, even though we mentioned mm-hmm. Plato and Socrates, uh, it's very well documented, I think, that the ancient Greeks were very, or at least, you know, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates were very... Um, skeptical if not out just uh plain uh plain again or just against democracies but we nonetheless find ourselves in one and so i want to have this discussion about what sort of obligations uh based on what a democracy is uh, mm-hmm. by definition um what obligations are bestowed upon citizens of democracies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, really what obligations you have are in part going to come from like, what is the institutional and constitutional makeup of the specific government that you live in? And, you know, what is it that you feel is valuable about democracy? Um, you know, for me, and I think for people who have the luxury of reading Rousseau and um, reading Elizabeth Anderson and John Dewey, um, I get to choose between like those three thinkers of like, oh, which one of those do I think represent my ideal form of democracy? And then whatever I think about that is what is going to, you know, say something about what my obligations are. Uh, most people don't have the luxuries that I am lucky enough to have. So instead of, you know, basing it off of, you know, what does Rousseau say about the general world, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, you might think of 
well, what is it about like the protection of my kids or um, the freedom I have to speak if I'm in the United States or, you know, a Western democracy that has most Western democracies are more like liberal democracies in that it's both majority rule and there's like constitutional protections that will protect something like a right to free speech so that even if the 52% of the country hates what you're saying, they still can't send the police out to get you for it. Um, If you have that sort of faith in democratic governance, then you, one of your obligations is going to be to defend those values that you hold dearly. And one of the obligations you are going to have is to make sure your democracy is stable and peaceful, right? And I'm speaking very much in general terms. Like, I'm not saying, like, specifically what that means right now. Um, and it's going to differ on, like, what community or state, you know, you happen to live in. Um, but I think that's the place to start with thinking about what your obligations are, is thinking about what are the values that are worth promoting, what are the values that my constitution or like the history of my governance or the history of my institutions say, you know, how might I have a chance, have a hand in making them better. Um, and largely as industrialized countries have grown up over the past 200 years, democracies have become um, at least in lip service participatory. <clears throat> so that means that not only is it that you might have a um, the right to vote, but maybe you have an obligation to vote because without your vote, uh, you aren't actually a participant in self-governance. Democracy affords certain freedoms because what it is to do democracy is to self-govern. It's the people self-governing. And if you're not a part of that, um, then you aren't a part of producing your government. It could mean something deeper. So it might mean you also go to city council meetings and you keep up with the news so that like you're not just a voter, but you're an informed voter. You know what the policy positions are that, you know, who your representatives that you're about to vote on are going to take. And so you vote on the representatives that you know are more consistent with the values you have about governance. Or like what you want governance to promote. Um, those are some of the more basic obligations I see in a democratic society. But one of the obligations uh, that you point out there, and one that I've uh, taken quite seriously, one of the obligations you mentioned there um, is being an informed citizen. This is not a not so, not so easy. Uh, obligation to fulfill. It it seems easy. Um, there are plenty of news outlets out there. Um, there are the legacy uh, news outlets that are the main, the, many of the ones that people see these days of Fox News and um, there's CBS, ABC, MSNBC, CNN. Um, and in part, as we've come to learn, many of these news outlets uh, tell the news with a slant. Yeah. 
right? From a particular lens. Um, some are pretty are pretty good about um, minimizing that lens or keeping that lens in check sometimes. Although it, there's that question of um, there, you, it's impossible to not do the news without a particular lens, right? Um, citizens are faced with this question of like, which source do I rely on? Then there's this this question of there are, there are issues and uh, there are issues that citizens are faced with that are sometimes sure appear intractable or unapproachable, uh, and this seems to be the case with economic uh, issues, right? Uh, it's even it, to a certain extent, even economists are sometimes um, unsure about what yeah. certain policies will do in the future. They can give you forecasts. They can give you these sort of uh, best and worst case scenario type of analysis and things like that. Um, but for, yeah. So I wonder what you mean by intractable in that sense. Because when you first said intractable, I would think something like like a social issue where we have intractable values, right? Like, Somebody who's pro-life because they believe that um, as soon as a sperm hits egg, then a, then there's insolment has an intractable view with somebody who is maybe an agnostic and who's like who has no view of the soul. So <laughs> they're not going to agree about, you know, whether or not a woman should have an abortion because, you know, not only is this a human organism, but this is like a person that's endowed with rights. Well, I. If you're an agnostic, you don't believe in souls, and like, what would even hold you to that? Yeah. Well, that's just like what I would think about and, with intractability. But like, you're talking about intractable about something that's kind of empirical. Yeah. So th- this uh, by intractable, I mean something more like they. It's hard to even get a handle of the information. Um. So in, in essence, they can't even get on. Yeah. Uh, track with that sort of discussion because it's difficult for them to even have that access to uh, not not just access to the information, but access to even understanding what's being said. Um, yeah. And I would add on to why that's difficult for not just expert economists, but everyday citizens is that um, we're not taught very well how to think about probabilities in yes. life. Yes. Um, this is actually something I talk about in my dissertation as like, I think a type of civics education we need to bring in is talking about math and probabilities as a, as their civic function. Yeah. Um, you know, in like a benign way, there's that old joke, um, weather forecasters are the only, it's the only job where you can be wrong all the time and still keep your job, which is like, very disrespectful to weather forecasts and all meteorologists out here there. I have the like <laughs> utmost respect for you, but that's because like, it's not that we don't understand what a percentage is, but um, you know, and I, I am included. I just want to know if it's going to rain or not, but like, there's no way to say, will it rain or not? What weather forecasters do is say there is a 60% chance mm-hmm. it's going to rain. Mm-hmm. And when I see 60%, I just say, okay, I'll grab my rain jacket on the way out. Um, And then if it doesn't rain, a lot of people, and sometimes I'm guilty of this too, will see, (laughs) you know, 60% or 80% and think, 
that weatherman lied to me. Yeah. Well, no, it's just that the improbable thing happened, <laughs> you know, and we've seen it with um, or the less probable thing. Right. And that's something that happens with economic forecasting. Right. They are still making forecasts yeah. um, about what will the economy look like. And I think as citizens, it's hard for us to get out of thinking that all that deterministically. Right. We're just not going to think it's hard for us to think about what does it mean that there's this percentage for 10 years out that the housing market will do this right first of all we don't it's hard for an everyday citizen like myself to understand the quote-unquote housing market then you're thinking about something that's 10 years down the line like i don't know how to think about something that's 10 years down the line when it concerns money and then you're presenting me with a percentage well then i don't know what that means (laughs) You know, but that's the kind of thing that we have to, like, vote on and stay an informed citizen on. And as you were just saying, the experts don't even agree about. Yeah. And so it's um, I think that's a very, very good example of, of the meteorologist. Uh, it's um, whenever I see. Yeah. Same. Same with you. It's like it's, if I see at least when I see 40 percent, I also say to myself, well, that means 60 percent there's a 60% chance that it won't rain because really you do see a lot of 30, 30%, 40% yeah. chance. Um, and the same with uh, economists, like they're giving you the best sort of information based on and probabilities based on the information that they have. Um, sometimes they get, um, get it. So it, in a sense, they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it wrong. But in, a, in another sense, they don't. Because they also, when they're giving you, tell you, uh, like when, the, when in the 2020 election, um, you know, in, 20, in the 2016 election, when Donald right. Trump won, there was this big hoopla about um, how political scientists and uh, uh, poll takers got things Nate wrong. Silver in particular. Right. Um, and anyway. There are other, I guess there are other sort of reasons to criticize Nate Silver. Um, but when they tell you that this is the case with a certain amount of uh, margin of error, um, they're telling you that these that certain things need to happen for this to for for the results to fall within that margin of error. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be the case that those things did happen. Um, and so the results were still within that margin of error. Right. Um, so, and really they're not telling you what will happen. People need to understand that. Like, but it's, it's what could happen if certain things hold true. Right. Um, and those things didn't hold true, unfortunately, in 2016. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're all making inductive claims Mm -hmm. which are just you know generalizable claims about what could happen we're not doing deduction where deduction is like arriving at for real true conclusions and and so to to get us back out of the weeds here um talking about induction and and things like that um damn philosophers (laughs) um this also touches on you know what are the, what's the responsibility of our institutions, namely our uh, education uh, educational institutions, in making sure that we are well informed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as you just mentioned, there are certain programs that we could have that could educate citizens and in, in becoming better or more informed citizens. Um, and and so it it's in one sense as citizens, yes, we have to be well informed. We have to go about in that business of uh, developing. Not just, I mean, so not to use good not to use the language of good opinions, but um, well formed uh, opinions that we can back up with a combination of arguments, a combination of facts, a combination of consideration of values, um, and that. But that that's tough, mm-hmm. right? Um, especially when you have citizens that are working eight to five jobs or multiple jobs, gig yeah. jobs. Um, so I wonder who have kids who have kids. Um, so then, yeah, then add on to that kids. Do we then say something like obligations change uh, by degrees based on who we, who the particular citizen is? And this is what we're talking about. Kind of uh, this, discussion about ideal versus re, uh, realism, right? There's some, um, ideally we want our citizens to be as formed and make informed decisions when they vote. Um, yeah. And, but the real part or the re, where the realism comes into play is, um, you know, should we temper uh, any sort of moral blame of any sort based on what's the sort of uh, obstacles or the information costs, if we want to use that question, uh, use that language, that citizens face from a database basis on individual basis as well. Yeah. Um, uh, there's this Oscar Wilde quote that he he's talking about socialism, um, but I actually think it's true for democracies. And he says the problem with socialism is that it would take up too many nights. <laughs> you know, you want your nights to be hanging out at the pub or hanging out with your family. Or whatever, right? And it's true about democracy. Like the school board meetings are on weeknights. The city council meetings are on weeknights. Um, Oh my God, if I have to listen to Steve Inskeep on NPR one more time some days, you know, you just are like, ugh, I'm going to throw on Gilmore Guys podcast instead. I want to just listen to people talk about my favorite show. (laughs) You know, it it is like super difficult and it's hard. Um, In one way, I do want to say, well, you want to live in a free and equal society, this is what we have to do. You want that for your kids? You got to put in the work. But then when it, but then like you do raise this point about the difference between the ideal and the real. Ideally, like we would always be motivated and we would never be tired and we would never be confused about things. But the real world is like we are those things. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think we can temper the moral blame in the world that we live in for, you know, not always going to the meetings or not always staying well-informed, not always engaging somebody in um, political debate who deserves a free exchange of reasons, you know, with you. Um, I would certainly be, uh, you, you can certainly hold me blame worthy for not doing that at all times. Um, but I think where those obstacles lie that you were talking about that we've been having a conversation about, it's the obligation of our political institutions, actually, to remove those obstacles. 
Now, I don't think you can remove every single obstacle. And I don't think you should spend every single portion of your free time, like, defending democracy. You know, there are other intrinsic values that are worth trading off at certain points in time. Um, But if it's the case that the government whose job it is to um, make sure that there's a bus system um, or that there's ample parking around City Hall fails in their duty to provide ample parking or to provide child care service at City Hall when there are public council meetings, um, then we can't hold citizens accountable because you can't just like find a babysitter some days. And if there's nowhere to park, if there's, if the bus doesn't go there or it's too expensive to ride the bus, then like, what are you going to do? Right. So it's up to the institutions to provide those. And this is kind of cyclical in the sense that like, okay, but we are the institutions. Yeah. Right. (laughs) These things aren't going to change unless we're the well-informed citizens going to city council meetings and, you know, that's just going to be part of, I think that's just a frustration of all real worlds. Until we realize a utopia, um, maybe we'll get out of that cycle. Uh, but it's always going to be a part of living in a democracy. But then I don't think that gets like specific mayors or maybe governors and presidents and legislators off the hook for being able to make different decision, different policy decisions than they made otherwise. Um, You know, I think we can look at a lot of the pushes to make voting less accessible around the country as one example. Uh, I think it is the case that I don't think that there should be a legal backing like they have in like Australia, for instance, to have be obligated to vote in Australia. You can be fined if you don't go vote. I'm not convinced that like that's the right thing to do, but I think in some ways we can hold you morally blameworthy for not voting. But I'm not going to hold you morally w- blameworthy for not voting if like you are scheduled to work that day. The line around the library where the voting is happening is like going to take an hour to sit in and there's no early voting. There's no absentee ballots. You have to like drive 10 miles to get there. Um, then I'm not going to hold you morally blameworthy for doing that. And the fact that your local governance did not provide you with early voting, did not provide you with a polling place that's closer to where you live and where you work. And I even think the United States of America not making Election Day a public holiday um, is implicated in a form of voter repression because they did not pull up all the obstacles that would make it feasible for every single citizen to vote in the United States. Based on the things that we haven't done to eliminate some of those costs to, to voting, would our governments uh, at, at the levels that have power to change these things uh, seem to be saying is, if you can make it, great. If you can't, no big deal. It is a big deal. Though. It is a big deal. Like, this is how you affirm your dignity as a citizen. And ask anybody who lived through the Jim Crow area about what it means to have your government disrespect you like that. You know, 
Yeah, and like you said, there's there's been tons of lip service about opening up that cha- those channels, uh, op- eliminating some of those information costs, um, eliminating the um, the temporal costs uh, associated with voting. Um, because right there, on an individual basis, citizens are saying or are faced with doing a task that has so many costs that it's almost better for them to not vote uh, and sort of not go through those costs than it is to to vote. That's what they're, they're and given the sort of results that tend to be the case for some of these individuals, like mm-hmm. that whoever they is voted in is not someone that is going to better their life in some way. Um, not voting is the rational thing for them. And we need to do things to eliminate or tip the scale to where it's no longer rational to vote, to not vote. Right. And we have. Yeah, I agree. I a hundred percent agree. And I is part of our, what I argue in my dissertation is. Yeah. Cause I, so, I mean, for the listeners, my dissertation is about uh, what are the civic obligations in a liberal democratic governance and specifically what are the epistemic civic obligations in a liberal democratic governance. And, uh, you know, what are the obstacles? And then if there are these obstacles, who's to blame and how can we remove some of those obstacles? Um, and I I have some hope about like the, David, have you ever read uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Dunstein's Nudge? Yes. Okay. Yes. I think, you know, there are a lot of ways in which we could nudge people into civic participation, right? I think one thing is uh, automatic registration of everybody when they, automatic voter registration for every single citizen when they turn 18, you know? Yeah. Um, I missed my first governor's election after I turned 18 because like, I don't know, where's the form? Well, it's not in front of me. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that's not saying you must vote or you must be registered. You can unregister unregister yourself if you would like. You can just never go vote if you would like. But if you but if you are already registered to vote, then like that's one obstacle that you don't have to make or like deal with the cognitive load of the decision to go. Now I gotta go find the paperwork. If I'm living in Texas, I have to like go print things out and go to the post office. I'm a millennial. I don't own a printer. You know, um, those are things that like we could make easier to do. And people deserve to have their lives made easier in that way. And so this is the this is the opt out mechanism that uh, uh, Thaler and Sunstein uh, talk about is instead of uh, because a lot of programs and they talk about this with the medical insurance. Yeah. 401ks. Yeah. Um, where people typically have to opt in. That's the same, that's the norm these uh, currently um, to get those benefits. Yeah. And then uh, what they suggest is uh, no, make it to the, make it the case where they have to opt out. Mm-hmm. Um, because ideally, because you want people to have these things, you want people to have insurance and have 401ks and think about their future. Um, cause that's the other part of it is be few, more future thinking. Right. Um, and, and 
the mechan- changing the mechanism for them to opt out instead of uh, opt in um, achieves the, these ends. Mm-hmm. Now, where it gets a little tricky for some people is that it just seems a little bit too paternalistic. Well, I like what they've done with their like tagline. We are doing libertarian paternalism. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, you're coming down on like the government or like your your job is saying, we know it's good for you, but they're not saying you must do the thing that we think is good for you. They're right. saying, right. we're just going to give you the default option to be the thing that is good for you. Um, if you choose not to do it, then that is your own choice. And they make this point that is true. Um, when you have a list of choices, something's got to go first If it, when it's a list. And one of the like cognitive biases we always face is the first option biases. That is, we tend to favor the things that we are presented with as like the first one, two, three lists. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like this data the avail- showing the availability. Uh, yeah, availability biases. Um, like, it, you know, when you Google something and this is something that I do all the time is I'll Google something. I don't even make it halfway down the page. <laughs> you know, I just click the first links that they give me because I am cognitively lazy as we all are. But like something has to be first. So make the first thing the thing that promotes social good. And how would you go... Um given the work that you do, Colleen. Um, and generally in in your in your also your public uh, your public philosophy endeavors as well, what would how would you tell people or what would you uh, how would you convince uh, your fellow citizens to perform their civic duty and vote? This and not just generally, but in this coming up, sure uh, election. Um, that's a good question. Um, we've been talking about like all these obstacles, and I, I think we've maybe made it a little bit pessimistic and kind of, of like, <laughs> well, it's not really up to me to convince people; it's up to like the government to like just make it easier to do things. But you know, at the end of the day, they're going to be people who just want to like stay in their little houses alone and watching trashy TV, you know? Um, So what I would say is that we cannot help but live in a social world where our lives and our decisions affect each other. Um, And presumably every single person has a good view of themselves in that you think you have good reasons for what you believe about politics or about values. So why would you not do yourself the dignity of getting other citizens or like maybe getting other citizens involved is not the right word, but uh, why would you not do yourself the dignity of being a part of the social world where you could promote those values? Right. And uh, I think I would get a lot of pushback like, oh, Colleen, you live in New York. You previously lived in Texas uh, where like your vote never counted for anything because New York's always blue. Texas is always red. Well, this isn't a midterms. There's some like Senate and congressional seats that are federal. 
But here in Broome County, New York, we're voting on county legislatures. We're voting on our state assembly members. We're voting on a new sheriff. There's a ballot initiative about bonds that will be invested in environmental stuff. Um, Last year was not a midterm year. And you know what? We were voting for mayor. That's where your vote does count. And that's where you're going to feel the most immediate and concrete effects of your vote. In a lot of ways, like voting for president, unless you are a unless you're a Pennsylvanian or a Georgian or I guess an Arizonan now, like, yeah, it's true. It doesn't matter. And some of those reasons are for the anti-democratic electoral college that is still in place. Um, but like in a lot of ways, I think voting for that is the same way that like I'm a Saints fan. <laughs> you know, I just want my preferred candidate to win and like the fact that I'm like mentally willing Taysom Hill to get into the end zone is the same of when I, you know, make my choice for president. (laughs) It kind of all cashes out the same. Uh, But like, I have more of a voice when it comes to these local elections where that's who decides which of these roads are going to be fixed. And that's going to decide whether or not the Susquehanna River is going to be cleaned up and that our local sewage system is going to be fixed, where that's an ongoing controversy here in Broome County is mm. what is the shared sewage system going to do, especially given the fact that we have been facing so many floods over the past few years because we get more intense rainstorms. Um, so I think I would try to convince people by reminding them that it's their community that counts, you know, and it's their community. If they want to be completely self-interested and make maybe a little bit selfish, then you should only go vote in off-year elections because those are the only ones that are going to be, have the most immediate effects. Now, of course, we have like these other sort of mandates that are going to come to pass based on the fact that, um, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned this summer. And that we're facing a downturning economy. And that's something that, you know, is going to be felt at the federal level. Well, these are all things that have to do with what are what do you see as your rights and what do you see as the legitimate place of government to come in and tell you how to spend your money or like what you should be thinking about investments in or thinking about um whether or not a potential human being should be allowed to be aborted right that those are personal decisions and what you're asking yourself is should the government come in and decide those things and um no matter what your view of it is these are still questions about freedom and if you live in a democracy if you live in america and you kind of subscribe to the mainstream American exceptionalism that is nice, that we're the great goddamn American experiment of freedom and equality for these past 200, almost 250 years, um, then, like, be a part of that experiment, you know? Defend your rights by go voting, whether that's the right to life or the right to choose. You know, I'm trying to be as bipartisan as I can right now. (laughs) Well, I think uh, to hopefully this summarizes your 
your point. Yeah, summarize because I uh, kind of rambled. <laughs> is that um, whether you're in a state where uh, it, that is that is most likely going to be blue or most likely going to be red, or even if you're in a uh, in a state that's going to be well contested, um, as a citizen uh, participating in the in a democracy, which is experimental by nature, uh, you should make your values known. Mm-hmm. You should make where you stand known, regardless of whether you're going to win or not. Um, in fact, it's it's best that you do that and continue that progress or continue that conversation uh, so that no one in power or that gets ends up getting in power um, can do so without having addressed your values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you and they can only do that. And you can only make sure they do that by participating. Mm-hmm. So whether you, whether you winning is a foregone conclusion or whether you losing is a foregone conclusion, um, make sure that your values are addressed that your concerns are addressed um, because in a democracy, the questions that go unanswered don't get addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that reason, um, it's important for us to, to participate. Yeah. And if we can bring it back to Socrates a bit, I would say, you know, in the Crito, um, now I'm not saying that you shouldn't, if you are faced with an unjustifiable public execution, which is what Socrates faced in the Crito. Um, but so Socrates... Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, right? Allegedly. Uh, depending on what cable news you watch, anyway. Um, so Socrates is sentenced to death by the Athenian court, and it's he obviously thinks it's an unjust decision, his followers get him a boat that they can sneak him on. They've paid off the like prison guard. They're going to sneak him on this boat, send him to Thessaly. And Socrates says, no, I'm going to stay because even though Athens is doing an injustice to me, the fact that I was born in Athens, fought for Athens in the Peloponnesian War, um, benefited from you know, the infrastructure of the Athenian government and the Athenian marketplace and the Athenian citizens and, you know, just eating the crops of my fellow Athenians. Um, By doing that, I've tied myself to the law of Athens and I must always respect the law of Athens. And I think a similar metaphor can be made for um, democracies. If you are proud to live in the United States, if you're proud of at least the ideal project of democracy and freedom, then you should have some respect for its institutions. And the greatest way to respect those institutions is to participate in them. Well, Colleen. David. (laughs) Thank you for, uh, having this conversation with me i think it's um as you know uh one i think is uh 
very important to always ask ourselves um, or to always have a discussion about, um, especially when it comes um, especially when it comes time to voting, but it should definitely happen more often mm-hmm. uh, for us yeah. to talk about our civic duties uh, in a system that we all think or mostly agree that is a good system or a good, uh, uh, at least in theory, to be a part of, which is being in a democracy where we get to uh, advocate for our values, um, vote on those values. Um, and to part- participate with our fellow citizens and thinking about yeah. um, the future of our country, the future of mm-hmm. of the places that we inhabit. Um, it's and one thing to also we want to I think it uh, to emphasize, and I think you um, brought this out too, Colleen, is that. Uh, a democracy is only as good or only good or best the more voices that uh, we include in it and that participate in it. Yeah. Um, part of the reason, as, as you pointed mm-hmm. out earlier with the Jim Crow laws, part of the issues that we're running in today is because of our failed actions in the past about the way we excluded people from uh, participating in our democracy. Right. Um, And so thank you for having this conversation with me, this general conversation about voting and and our civic duties in a democracy. And it's hopefully one that I hope sparks uh, additional discussion and interest uh, to those listening. Uh, So thank you, Colleen. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to listen to me more wax philosophical about democracy, um, if I may plug, David, uh, give my podcast a listen, The Wisdom of the People, a podcast on the philosophy that bounds democracy. And it, although it's not, although it's in New York, it's not just about New York. So just to give, right. uh, to put that emphasis out there. Um, and with that, Thank you all for listening and I will see you on the next episode of Lawrence Talks. Bye.